Everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. My name is Hitzer. Hi, sir. Um, this month we'll be talking to you about well, counting down actually the <laughs> ten best films of 2022 so far. This is a Behold Mid-Year Report. We didn't do one for this last year, mm-hmm. uh, but we figured it would be prudent to do one this year, so we don't have to cram so many things into <laughs> our year-end list. Um, so yeah, we'll be talking about the 10 best films of 2022 so far. And this will be a first time. Um, this kind of theme, um, our top 10, will be divided into two episodes. Yeah. So this is a two-parter. Um, for, so for part one, we'll only be running down number 10 to number 6, our first five picks. And then if you want to listen to number 5 to number 1, uh, the next episode will be up in a couple of weeks. So look out for that. Um, we'll leave you a bit in suspense um so <laughs> the 50th and 51st are joined together they're essentially um our first two partner here um before we delve into um our top 10 best films of the year thus far um as of 7th of june which is our recording date today so if any of the films uh, if there if there are films coming after june um we won't be considering them because i have not seen them uh but well, let's leave that to the end of the year la. yeah um, for now, I know you don't have too many honorable mentions, so I'm just going to hop in with some of mine. Yeah. Um, firstly, honorable mention is uh, Lucy and Desi, which is Amy Poehler's Amazon documentary about the life, careers of, uh, life and careers of groundbreaking comedians uh, Lucy Ball and Desi Arnaz, mm-hmm. uh, which is a far superior cinematic uh, exploration of their relationship and careers than Aaron Sorkin's Being the Ricardos. <laughs> um, also would like to shout out a couple of films that I've already talked about on genre equality, so I won't be um, delving in too much into them. Firstly, is Memoria starring Tilda Swinton oh, yeah. from, um, from Thai, Thai Otio. Um, I'm not going to pronounce his name, but you know who he is. Um, <laughs> very, very good. Uh, Celine Siama is back um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire fame. She's back with a new film, um, a sci-fi time travel story called Petite Maman, which I've also already reviewed on Journal Equality. Mm-hmm. That barely misses out on my top 10. Um, alongside that, I would like to shout out Ninja Baby, um, a Norwegian film about uh, a struggling broke cartoonist who unexpectedly gets pregnant and only finds out that she's pregnant when she's six months pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's too late for an abortion. Um, so she creates this proxy character in a comic book called Ninja Baby, um, sort of a proxy for the baby that snuck up on her like a ninja. Uh, and she has conversations with this animated character who keeps telling her that she's a terrible mother and she doesn't have children. <laughs> um, also would like to shout out uh, a Taiwanese film called The Falls, which is technically a 2021 film if you live in Taiwan. But for the rest of the world, it's a 2022 film because it was only released on Netflix this January. Mm-hmm. Um, the Falls is one of the best COVID-19 lockdown pandemic kind of stories about uh, a daughter struggling to take care of her mentally ill mother who goes off the deep end after she's laid off due to COVID-19. Um, other um, great outstanding films this year is uh, A Hero uh, by Askar Farhadi, um, an Iranian film about a guy who finds a literal purse of gold um, and decides to return it only for it to backfire on him. It's a great little morality fable um, mm-hmm. and also has... Um, some sort of parallels with real life because Asa Fogadi himself is um, being sued for the film 
Um, a film student of his claims that she actually made a documentary about the real life situation of this, um, and says that Asa Fogadi um, stole the premise of the film. Um, Asa Fogadi basically said, "Yes, you did make a documentary, which I advised you on about a real life situation on this. But I based my film on the real life situation, not on your documentary." A bit of a complex issue there. Oh, yeah. I don't know who's right, don't know who's wrong. Hmm. Um, and you know, to avoid the controversy, I just kind of left it out of the top ten. But the top ten is so packed anyway. I don't think it would have made it. Yeah. Uh, and last but not least, we'll have to shout out Red Rocket, uh, released by A24. It's uh by from uh fuck, I forgot his name, the director of the Florida Projects, um, who we've already talked about. Um, great director. This is uh, about a washed up porn star who moves back to his Texas hometown, uh, and hustles for a living. A uh, very fun movie as well, although a little icky and creepy. Um, one of the best anti-heroes you'll see out there. Um, yeah, those are some of the honorable mentions that I have. Uh, have you seen any of these, or do you have your own honorable mentions? Ooh, uh, definitely want to shout out uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. I'm guessing that's from the majority of the 2022 movie. Mm. Uh, that's definitely high up there, but I understand. I mean, I obviously uh, don't think it's within the top 10, but pretty close, pretty close. Definitely within the next okay. five for me. Uh, just because I haven't watched nearly as much as you have this year. Um, yep. For sure. Uh, outside of that, yeah, more or less the ones that I've caught, I think I agree. That's just kind of like outside the top 10. Uh, but mm. I haven't watched it, um, the bulk of them, unfortunately. Ah, so, well, I mean, you, you always have time to catch up. Um, mm-hmm. The year is still young. Um, a lot of these films are right now streaming on, on various services. Um, they are no longer, well, with the exception of one of the films on our list, uh, most of them are not in cinemas right now. Yeah. And they're already on VOD, digital, streaming. So it's easy to catch up on any of these films. And that's actually part of the point of why we do things like this to recommend yeah. you check them out, um, even if you can't see them in cinemas. Although, I mean, the one that is currently in cinemas, you do have to watch in cinemas. Yeah. But <laughs> we'll get to that at first. Uh. Um, let's count down first with our number 10, coming in at number 10, mm-hmm. uh, is... Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Um, if any director has earned the right to do whatever he wants, it is Steven Spielberg. The fame of Thor is sort of on a five-decade, um, 50-year winning streak. <laughs> um, it un- encompasses Oscar-winning historical dramas like Schindler's List, The Post, Munich. He has blockbuster commercial entertainment under his belt like Jurassic Park. Jaws, E.T., and then you got things in between, like you're saving Private Ryan, yeah. you Catch Me If You Can. No one can claim such a stunning filmography. Yet, when it was announced that Spielberg would be helming a remake of his beloved musical, uh, of the beloved musical West Side Story, many had their doubts. Would his musical, would his virgin foray into the genre be a step too far? And he certainly had big shoes to fill with West Side Story. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins's stage show, which, which you know, debuted in 1957, remains a towering popular classic of the medium. Um, it features some of the best Broadway uh, show tunes ever, courtesy of Leonard Bernstein and the late Stephen Sondheim. And beyond that, any new cinematic version of West Side Story has to not only compete with the stage version, but also our technicolor memories of a quintessential Hollywood classic, yeah. the 1961 adaptation, which swept the Oscars and continues to conquer the hearts of musical aficionados in every generation since its release. It's, it keeps being in the forefront of your mind when you talk about a movie musical. So it's a tall order for anyone, even someone of the caliber of Spielberg. In your opinion, did 
Do you think Steven Spielberg's West Side Story managed to live up their expectations? Was his first foray into the genre successful? I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I I think like it's a two kind of pronged thing. Uh, what makes mm-hmm. his version, what makes Spielberg's version, kind of like stand out from the West? Uh, he brings definitely a unique lens to you know just the cinematography of it, uh, how it lands, how how he wanted it to be told, and all kind of like the the visual uh, distinctions that make it uh, feel like a Spielberg thing, right? That's mm. one. And number two, uh, it is the the amazing voice <laughs> that was chosen to play. Uh, uh, Maria. Yeah, Maria. Rachel Ziegler's voice is... Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not as big on musicals as you, but like I, I was absolutely blown away. And I'm going to be watching her career with... Uh, with uh, a lot of interest um, just because mm-hmm. of how unique and how powerful a voice she has, uh, yeah. both in terms of like the sheer quality of it as well, the the evocativeness of it as well. Like I think those two things really make uh, this Mm-mm. stand out to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think more than that also, like beyond the cast and everything, it's actually a, from a cinematography and filmmaking standpoint, yeah. it's a knockout blend of old school musical showmanship and more modern <laughs> sensibilities. Yeah. Um, it isn't just lavish and dynamically orchestrated. Spielberg has crafted a genuinely thoughtful update that fixes the original's outmoded and occasionally problematic elements mm-hmm. while still retaining its vibrant essence. If we look at the stunning musical numbers he inserted into films like 1941 or Indiana Jones and the Devil of Doom, we know that Steven Spielberg has been kind of a song and dance enthusiast from the start. And now 50 years into his career, he's finally kind of unleashed that inner musical theater in it um, to bring to life this saga of star-crossed lovers and gangland warfare that mixes knife fights with ballet twirls. And <laughs> if you aren't already familiar, the story is basically Romeo and Juliet, um, just transported to the streets of Manhattan's Upper West Side, circa 1950s. Um, reformed teenage hoodlum Tony, played by Ansel Elgott here, is the leader of white gang Bajets, who falls in love at first sight with Maria, played by Rachel Zagler, as you mentioned. Uh, the younger sister of his sworn rival, Bernardo, played by David Alvarez, who is the head of a Puerto Rican gang, mm-hmm. the Sharks. The uh, tragic trajectory is fairly predictable, but that doesn't stop you from being totally engrossed. Um, besides the romance and the racial tension, Spielberg has subtly added a new layer of social commentary, but gentrification that backdrops a meaningless adolescent turf war. Yeah. Um, I thought all that paired together makes it a very interesting story, not just a great musical, but a good story as well alongside everything else. And you know, he's working once again with screenwriter Tony Kushner, and Spielberg has revitalized, I feel, West Side Story by giving its cast of, of characters more depth more insight and more drama with a few crucial tweaks. Um, That's not to say its earlier versions should be tossed aside. They are masterpieces. But first and foremost, the whitewashing of the 1961 film mm-hmm. is gone. Yep. Um, here, the Puerto Rican characters are all portrayed by Latinx actors. The film goes further in its reach for cultural authenticity by delivering a flowing mix of English and, get this, unsubtitled Spanish dialogue. Mm-hmm. Spielberg reasons that audiences who don't speak both languages will be able to follow the emotional logic of any scene um, through the actress's um, cadence or expression. Yeah. And he's right, but it's still a bold risk for a big budget tempo. You gotta, you, you, I mean, somebody must have given him some notes to, to add subtitles and he must have refused because Spielberg can do what Spielberg wants. <laughs> uh, but where a musical truly shines is in its musical numbers. And in this regard, yeah. the film is at its most 
astonishing. It's a triumph. Spielberg has always been an expert at nimble camera blocking. His gift for legibly communicating complex sequences of movement on a massive scale is unparalleled. Mm. He's done this so many times. <laughs> the translation of that gift from action to staging a musical is thrilling and Spielberg's cameras race around his dances, mirroring the immense physicality of Justin Peck's stunning choreography. Mm-hmm. Um, he has the ecstatic slide and swing of his craft. Um, some numbers use virtuosic long takes to privilege a clear, a clear vantage point of the spectacle while others sort of miraculously cut across time and space. The fights even are enriched with more menacing heft. Um, even while the gangs are still twirling and jumping through the streets when they cause trouble, they feel like gangsters, they feel like street kids, not the theater kids that the 1961 film was. Yeah. Uh, and as you said, the real star of the show is, of course, Rachel Zegler, who is a high school musical theater student and YouTuber who Spielberg plucked from the relative unknown, absolutely marvelous as Maria delivering an instant superstar performance. Um, Shark Leader Bernardo is really, really mm-hmm, good as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. Um, Ariana DeBose is even better as uh, his brassy fiance Anita. And uh, Michael Fight's uh, charged work as Jet Leader Riff is a real revelation here. Um, I think he has a kind of wiry intensity that the 1961 film counterpart did not have. Yeah. If there is a weak link, it's certainly leading man Ansel Elgort, <sighs> who, mm-hmm. even without the cloud of his sexual assault scandal, Elgort is simply um, not bad, but not on the level of greatness uh, of his co-stars and supporting cast. No. Um he reminds me a bit of um, Emma Watson in Little Women, who is not bad. She's just overshadowed all the time by everyone else. Um, <laughs> do, do, do you agree with like, the strengths and the weaknesses that I pointed out of the film? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think yeah. a big part of it, like we talk a lot about like, Rachel uh, Ziegler's her voice, you know, her being coming on as a kind of a fresh face to, to the cinema world and all of that. Uh, but her voice is also one of the things that I think has exposed a lot of weaknesses uh, for the mm. rest of the cast in particular, right? Like mm. uh, Ariana DeBose has an amazing voice, right, on her own. But when she duets with Rachel, uh, it, it kind of falls a little flat, right? That That's the kind of like quality Rachel's kind of voice has in terms of like the timber of it, the fullness of it. Uh, and the rest of them, uh, especially I think uh, David Alvarez and all of that, like they are more than amazing singers in their own right. And so and Elgort dancers and, and, and dancers too. And so Elgort is neither a great singer nor a great dancer. And in the mm. midst of the rest of the cast, or the main cast at very least, right? And, and especially in pairings with Rachel, uh, wow, that really shows and it hurts, I think. Um, yeah, he has to pair with Riff a lot also And Riff overshadows him too He has to pair with Bernardo And Bernardo overshadows him as well There's just no one Yeah um, That he, yeah, you know yeah. Not even close, right? And it, yeah. it it makes it feel like I mean, we've discussed before Kind of like uh, There are problematic kind of things, right? With, with West Side Story In its story itself And uh, and Spielberg has, has managed to Kind of like Subvert a lot of that And make sure that things that are meant to be Are meant to be But there's still some, you know, plot elements uh, that, I mean, these aren't spoilers, right? Oh yeah, my brother, just yep. you just killed my brother, let's, let's uh, mm-hmm. sleep together, right? Like, yeah. those kind of problematic things. Um, I feel like so much of the story hangs on the musical elements here that it becomes an extension of 
um, the characters themselves, right? So much so that Ansel Elgort's character feels ineffectual because his musical performances aren't as mm. amazing or aren't as great or aren't as polished, yep. right? And that plays into like my perception at least or my personal opinion about his character's uh, um, part within the story itself. You know, which mm. it makes it a little bit more tragic, I guess, but also kind of feels a bit off, um, so to say. But not to say that we, I didn't enjoy this thoroughly, uh, but still, you know, it was just one of those things that was a bit more salient and, and bothered me a bit more than everything else. Yeah, yeah. Um, in addition to that, in, in another clever little update that Spielberg has added, the kindly pharmacist from the original Doc yeah. has been replaced by a character named Valentina who is played by Rita Moreno, who played Anita in the original 1961 film. Um, the casting is, of course, a sentimental throwback to that Spielberg works to his advantage by not only making the story's voice of wisdom, mm-hmm. a Puerto Rican actress, but also someone whose entire persona and career is tinged by the joy and tragedy of the original. It yeah. exemplifies the death balancing act between the classical and the, contempor- uh, and the contemporary that Spielberg has accomplished. Um, I think this latest version of West Side Story is vivid, it's sweeping, a top-tier piece of pop art that will uh, make your heart sing. Um, yep. It's a great film. The story, of course, as I mentioned about gentrification is also really, really good. You know, they are, they, you have the jets and you have the sharks and they're both being muscled out of the city, not by each other, but by financial and institutional forces that view them all, white or brown, as low-income vermin. The, the neighborhood that we see was paved to build the Lincoln Center in real life and as part of a wider push for urban renewal that erased whole neighborhoods and ways of life back in the 50s and in the 60s. Spielberg is underlining the futility of the gang feud, but also the desperation driving it. The devoured land, their land, their territory is of immense importance to its residents. That's why they're fighting. Um, I think that's very interesting. Also, it adds a bit more uh, political heft to uh, what should be an adolescent turf war. So mm, it yes. becomes more important there. Yeah. Um, any closing thoughts about uh, West Side Story as our number 10? Uh, no, I think it's a fitting spot for our kind of like mid-year run out. I really, really enjoyed this going in. In fact, uh, post this, uh, rewatched it a second time as well mm. as went on kind of like a musical binge because it's the first musical I watched in a while. You know, and, yep. and that says a lot, right? Like it was uh, all in all like kind of like inspiring uh, to, to kind of like dive back into the genre itself. Definitely. Um, number nine, um, coming in at number nine, speaking of filmmakers in their fifth year <laughs> here. Yes. Uh, also in his fifth decade as a filmmaker, Pedro Almodovar, who we've talked about previously on Behold, is amazingly still pushing new directions in his art form while staying true to his playful style and provocative roots. The celebrated Spanish author most recently made an ingenious use of COVID-era limitations to make his short film The Human Voice, a a chamber piece starring Tilda Swinton, that served as his first project not in his native Spanish. But just because Almodovar has begun turning his sights beyond Spain doesn't mean he's done exploring and interrogating his homeland. Mm. His latest feature at number 9, Parallel Mothers, may suggest a familiar variation of his favorite themes, the melancholy melodramas of mothers and women, the cure community, and the disenfranchised. And in many ways, it's one of his most exquisitely crafted domestic dramas about marginalized uh, women in Spain. But Parallel Mothers is also jagged with newfound, sharper political edges, ones that combine his penchant for smart comedy and vibrant color palettes mm-hmm. with a somber memorial 
to the victims of forgotten national tragedies. This is set in 2016, and the film begins with two women, uh, Janice, played by Penelope Cruz, and Anna, played by Milena Smith, who are coincidentally about to give birth in the same hospital room. Both are single and become pregnant by accident. Janice is a middle-aged professional photographer, and she is exuberant at the prospect of becoming a mother. Meanwhile, Anna, an adolescent, is scared, repentant, and traumatized from a sexual assault. Um, supported only by her self-absorbed actress mother. Um, so Janice tries to encourage her. You know, they take strolls along hospital corridors. Yeah. And the few words they exchange creates a close bond between the two, a bond that will by chance develop, complicate, and change their lives in unexpected ways. And while the film sets itself up initially as an examination of the peculiar perils of single motherhood, a lot of nimbly <laughs> veers to, to use multiple generations of matriarchs in the story to bring to light the families irreparably broken by the cruelty of Spain's former autocratic regime. Um, Genesis' casual fling with her baby daddy, who is a forensic anthropologist, Arturo, only began because she sought his assistance in organizing an excavation of a mass grave in her hometown. Mm -hmm. Janice is looking for the body of her great-grandfather, one of an estimated 115,000 citizens who fell victim to the violent anti-communist persecution of the Spanish Civil War a fascist uprising that eventually led to Francisco Franco's nearly 40-year reign from 1936 up till his death in 1975. This is not a new thing. Hmm. Um, though the scale of the senseless massacre is shocking, it is still considered a point of pride for far-right Spanish conservatives today, while most of the populace remains cagey about the issue, preferring to forget such tragedies. And like many of our Modabas films, um, Parallel Mothers dramatizes the generational divides, and through the motive of matrilineages, yeah. he surveys the broader Spanish cultural attitudes through the decade. As Janice pursues her great-grandfather's exhumation, Anna even rudely dismisses her cause as an obsession. Um, she's furious at the ignorance of the younger generation, and Janice explains that the war hasn't truly ended if its atrocities go unaccounted for. And the perspective of their mothers and grandmothers vary as well, shaped by the different political landscapes they grew up then. Um, in the midst of all these backstory and story and domestic drama about single motherhood and the backdrop of uh, political atrocity, um, how well do you think Parallel Mothers succeeds in its themes and in its story? Oh, man. Uh, yes. Like, we've we've done a recent couple of months, I think, uh, kind of feature for people on, on Moldova. And of course, this is just the most recent addition to that. Uh, mm. And, you know, carrying on, uh, it is so, so obvious that it is his film. Like, it's one of his films, yeah. right? Like, it's an immediate kind of, like, visual identifier, right? Uh, and mm. once again, like, I think for me personally, like, Penelope Cruz is outstanding uh, in mm. the lead role here as as Janice. Um, as Janice. Uh, and uh, Milena Spin does a fantastic job here as well. Uh I love it. The the melodrama of it all, the the telenovela ness of it all, mm. uh, yep. is I think it's most peak here uh, mm. of all the films that we have kind of covered from him. Uh, yeah, here. and there is such uh, it's so well paced and finely tuned in terms of like the emotional kind of spe specificity of it, right? Uh, and 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 how. Um, the emotional turmoil, I think, especially when it comes to, you know, uh, both um, characters and their struggles as single mothers, um, mm. you know, decidedly, you know, what makes a family, uh, what, 
uh, if, if, if the child is biologically yours, is it really yours? And, and, and all the kind of questions yeah. that it brings up from there. And mm. what is most amazing to me is how he so skillfully ties that in to this desire to kind of like complete the family story with the, the search for her, her gra- uh, grandfather. Um, yeah. It's kind of insane. Uh, it, it's almost like a magic trick, right? Like you are mm. following so keenly on what seems to be the center focus on that. When it switches, you're unaware, um, you know, mm. and it only kind of like creeps up on you in the end, like the, the trick, how the trick has been pulled off. Uh, and I think that to me was the most enjoyable part of it because you are kind of swept away, right? With the story, with the performances, mm. with the colors, with the music. And then there's kind of like a much kind of larger looming uh, thematic uh, morality behind it that mm. uh, dawns on you only at the very end. And uh, I, it was such an experience to, to watch Parallel Mothers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like all of Amadova's films, this is an art house telenovela. Mm, um, yes. Centered on a psychologically fraught relationship between two women, like all of his films. Um, it has cascading turns, it has thickening complications, high family drama, the plot twist kick into soap operatic insanity um, <laughs> that is that you will see on the CW or something. Yeah. Uh, and yet, it's messy combination of seriousness and salaciousness mm-hmm never goes off the rails. It blazes with finesse, as you mentioned, and Amadeva pulls everything together. Um, part of the film's engrossing magic is down to the sensuality or tactility of Amadeva's large, lush lensing, yeah. his deep, focused photography. Mm. Every frame is painterly. It captures pace, mood. It captures location. Yeah. Alongside just simply looking beautiful. But I think the biggest part of the film's success, as you mentioned, hinges upon its two great leads. And in other hands, a film like Parallel Mothers could have easily been an overwrought, messy <laughs> soap opera. Yeah. Um, in our modiverse, it becomes a transportive and revelatory experience. Uh, how can a melodrama about the joys and sufferings of motherhood also be about the historical massacre of hundreds of thousands of innocents? Yeah. It can, because what Parallel Mothers is really about is about the enduring women who sustain our families across generations mm. through tragedy, through adversity, especially through absent fathers, to offer comfort and catharsis when we need it the most. Uh, that's what the film is about. Um, any parting thoughts on Parallel Mothers, our number nine entry? Oh, man. Uh, I, I think Parallel Mothers, for me, might have taken the first spot as far as all Elmaldua movies go um, mm. so far. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that could also be because it's the first one you saw on the big screen. It, which it is true. Course, yes, that yeah. is true. Yeah, which which always adds like a different dimension. Like it always feels more impactful on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like not all just because it's art house and because it's low budget doesn't mean they are small screen experiences. This is definitely a big screen experience, I agree. especially with the cinematography of her motiva. Yeah. Um uh, speaking of big screen experiences, let's move on to uh our number eight uh entry, which is a huge surprise, a late <laughs> entry into the top ten list. Yeah. Um it is Top Gun Maverick. Oh, the original Top Gun was the quintessential 1980s movie. Um is it perfect? No. Um does it age well? Not at all. Uh yet it remains kind of enshrined in its in its own pop culture bubble as the ideal representation of 80s Hollywood. It's glossy, it's superficial, it's soaked <laughs> true and true with sweaty bromance and cocky machismo and soft rock anthems. Um, it wasn't just the high-flying vehicle that made Tom Cruise a star. It captured the brash vibe of an era 
when the idea of American exceptionalism and individualism didn't seem like a delusional joke. Yeah. That was the 80s, you know? And for all its faults, its stupid charm kind of remains infectious to this day. <laughs> uh, yet, when it was announced that Top Gun would be continuing with a sequel 36 years later, many, including myself, assumed it would be just another legacy, nostalgia, cash grab, mm -hmm. yet another lazy attempt to feed audiences a revived IP long past its salvage. As it turns out, Top Gun 2 is anything but. Um, in terms of action, yes. storytelling, mm -hmm. acting, emotion, and just as a purely exhilarating aerial spectacle, Maverick soars above and beyond the original in every conceivable way. This movie is outstanding. The ultimate package of what you want from a classic summer blockbuster entertainment. Top Gun Maverick has visceral thrills. It has massive perils. It has hard-fought victories, romance, searing drama, um, and even some poignant pathos from its elite characters. It's truly impressive how well this movie works as a crowd pleaser. Part of its success is down to just how brilliantly director Joe Kaczynski mm. crafts this supersonic, rocket fuel, stomach-churning action on display here. Uh, but beyond even the technical improvements, the real ace up its sleeve is writer Christopher McQuarrie, whose script acknowledges the brashness of the film's past yeah. without pandering um, to it. Uh -huh. um, it, it. It puts together... Uh, it has this cake and he eats it too. Um, so much about this film works. Uh, nearly everything does, um, including Tom Cruise, who reprises his role as Pete Mitchell here, uh, call, call sign Maverick, if you don't know. Um, Cruise's character is no longer the, sort of is, but a bit wiser. <laughs> the, 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 the young, ego-driven hotshot he was. He's a bit older. He's a bit wiser. Um, he's learned from the mistakes of his arrogant 20s. Um, some of it is still felt today, the repercussions of that. He's still only a captain despite decades in the Navy, and we find out that Mitchell burned out as a flight instructor just months after the first movie and mm -hmm. has spent his days consigned to a remote outpost as a test pilot, pushing experimental aircraft to its limits. The perfect job for a boundary-pushing daredevil. But when an international crisis emerges, the formerly rebellious student becomes the unorthodox teacher as Mavericks receives orders from Iceman himself, Val Kilmer, to return to Top Gun and train a new generation of overconfident aviators. Their mission? To destroy a heavily fortified illegal uranium enrichment plant. The film wisely doesn't name any offending country. They're only vaguely referred to as the enemy. Yeah. It keeps it accessible to any country or any audience. Um, and when Maverick gets to San Diego, there are a few problems. Uh, one is the presence of an old flame uh, named Penny who owns the local bar, uh, who is, um, you know, an ex. He also discovers that one of his trainees, Bradley Bradshaw, is uh, played by Miles Teller, call sign Rooster, is the disgruntled son of Maverick's late co-pilot, Goose, who understandably bears a grudge against Tom Cruise. Um, unsure how best to prepare the young pilot for a mission that requires absolute self-assurance, Maverick attempts to mend fences with Rooster while watching him compete with classmates like Hangman, uh, Glenn Powell is pretty much this movie's version of Iceman. Um, and as the deadline for the mission clears, Maverick trains Rooster, Hangman, uh, and the other pilots with increasing urgency, hoping they will, re they will rise to his unconventional challenges while taking a hard look at his own career as reflected through his students' failures and successes. Um, what do you think about uh, Top Gun Maverick and how it manages to pay homage to the iconic moments of Top Gun but not... Uh, feel like it's pandering and how do you feel about the you know the action the emotion the drama uh, and how it manages to upstage the original Top Gun as like you know a serious film yeah. yeah oh man where to begin 
this is so much yeah. fun. This was just so much fun. Like probably some of the best fun I've had in the cinema in a while. Mm. You know. Uh and I, I, I remember you coming to me and it was like, hey, listen, like Top Gun Maverick, you gotta watch it. It's probably like one of the yep. best action films in the last decade. And I was just mm. like, really? I mean, I enjoyed the old Top Gun, especially when I was younger. You know, mm. but like that seemed a bit difficult to kind of believe. I walked out a believer. Uh, mm. I walked out of the cinema a believer. I think that um, everything that they tried to do, as ambitious as it was, they succeeded at. And that's saying a lot, mm. right? Yep. Uh, Tom Cruise, uh, perhaps in one of his most, not dramatic necessarily, and not over the top. In fact, if anything, this is one of his more muted roles. Right, but mm. he inhabits the skin of Pete Mitchell so well; it feels like such a perfect continuation of the story from the original, but with yep. tons more kind of character development. Right, the thirty years mm. in which we've seen him last are all felt, are all seen in kind of the lines on his face and the way that he delivers his performance, which is really just really, really good and utterly believable. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, uh, Miles Teller, I think, uh, being cast as, as Rooster, uh, being Goose's son, like totally mm. believable. Uh, you know, you can totally feel the, you can, you can, I guess, kind of see the resemblance. Uh, you know, from there, but it is absolutely believable, and and the way that they weave that in together with all the kind of like flashbacks from the original movie and the callbacks to that. Uh, mm-hmm. felt really good and felt very natural like it didn't feel forced in kind of like any way um, mm. you know Jennifer Connelly as always beautiful on screen uh, also mm. a very interesting um, not overly uh, cheesy uh, okay some parts are definitely cheesy but you expected that right uh, yeah. not overly kind of like cheesy uh, love interest for, for Cruz as well but nothing over the top I think what was interesting mm. to me in particular was the introduction of John Hamm as part of the cast, right? Mm. Uh, and I don't know if that's necessarily because their original plans for Kilmer to play a much larger role um, was affected by his um, by his condition, throat uh, yep. the throat cancer. Uh, but I have no complaints because I think ultimately the way that that played out felt both fitting and one of the most emotionally powerful and poignant scenes of the entire movie itself. But John Mm. Hamm coming in as kind of a new character with ties to the organization, but no history, like no personal history with, um, Mm -hmm. with Pete Mitchell himself, I think added a lot of weight and a lot of authority to it, right? Like it's not like he can, Maverick can get away with things anymore. You know, and just mm. kind of like the force of personality of these like very charismatic um, actors as they're kind of like butting heads with each other was really, really kind of fun to watch. Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, of course, throwbacks to like, you know, Danger Zone all the way at the beginning of the show uh, mm. and just a all around kind of like nostalgia trip with many of the songs that they picked. Yeah. Uh, um, coupled with the amazing action, like, putting actors in a plane, uh, having them train like for months and months on end just to make sure they would, you know, they would look good in a plane with a massive camera set up in front of them is mm-hmm. one of the most uh, visceral experiences I've seen in cinema in recent times. 
right? Uh, yeah. Just being able to see the every kind of like tug and pull on their facial expressions as they're actually experiencing a G-force and making all those yeah. turns from the fact that every maneuver that has been made was done by some pilot in an actual plane is mm. kind of insane, right? And mm. I don't think there is... Uh, as great as our CGI technology has come, as amazing as so many CGI artists uh, have made incredible things, uh, I don't think that you could um, replace that or even come close to that. And it was incredibly satisfying, uh, the, the the realness of it all. Yes, yes. You know, um, everything you said was true. You know, it finds a way to pay homage to iconic moments in Top Gun, mm-hmm. but in a way that doesn't feel frivolous. Yeah. And it also serves a purpose story-wise, you know. Um, you know, they are callbacks to beachside games, but this time it has a purpose as a team building tool. Uh, callbacks to Great Balls of Fire on a piano, but this time <laughs> has a, a surprisingly emotional purpose as well. You know, it's able to unironically un- pay tribute to the past, but in a way that builds upon what we know to add weight to new situations and new characters and new moments. Yeah, the character beats and dynamics in Maverick are far superior to Top Gun, but. Like you said, where the film really shines is the astonishing aeronautical action. Mm. You know, they they put actors in, you know, instead of putting them in studio cockpits and matching shots with real aerial footage, Kaczynski, as you said, actually sent their cars up in the sky <laughs> and captured their, their reactions with IMAX quality cameras on the dashboards, you know. Um, and after Cruz's increasing Daredevil acts in the Mission Impossible franchise, the choice comes as no surprise for his sequences at least. Oh, yeah. uh, but it was surprising for the rest of the cast too to follow in his footsteps. He's the leader. He's the real leader in in you know in, in terms of the cast and in the film itself. Yeah. The consistency and the versatility of the coverage, the aerial footage and coverage that Kaczynski gets creates an incredible versatility that almost no action film has recently matched unless you're thinking about the Mission Impossible films mm-hmm. and that's on Cruise too. Yeah. You'll be gobsmacked by the footage in Maverick. And unlike other modern blockbusters that genuinely look like CGI cartoons, you know, we're <laughs> kind of looking at you, MCU. Um, yeah. Your, yeah, I mean, we've all seen Doctor <laughs> Strange and all of that, you know. But when you compare that with the realism of these impossibly fast, high-altitude roller coaster sequences that just ties your stomach into knots and it will have you leaning back into your seat, um, it's such a technical, visceral, thrill-making triumph uh, the, everything about it works on a on a stunt and action standpoint. Yeah. Um. In a way that I haven't seen since perhaps the Mission Impossible films or Mad Max Fury Road. Mm. Um. Or if you even go further back, you know, stuff like Terminator 2 Judgment Day or Speed or things like that. And what do all those movies have in common? They were practical. You know, when a fucking truck falls off a bridge in Terminator <laughs> 2, that's a real fucking truck that falls off a bridge. Like. CGI can get as good as you want. Like, nothing beats the feel- feeling of actually seeing something happening in real life. Your eyes can tell. You can. Yeah. Like, technology has... Maybe it will one day, but it, as for now, it hasn't. Uh, and you have to believe in what you're watching. La. And and for a roller coaster like this to work, you have to believe you're in that roller coaster. And everything about this works alongside every moment of introspection and mm-hmm. suffering mm-hmm. and emotion and determination. It's all the more accentuated and strengthened. And then it all feels so fist-bumpingly good because you... Sk- you care so damn much about the story and the people and the human concerns outside of the sublime action. Um, it takes every box and it's one of the best action sequels that uh, Hollywood has ever 
produce. If you want a rapturous or emotionally engaging or breathtaking time at the movies, yeah. you won't be disappointed by Top Gun Maverick, which you have to see in cinemas. Oh, do yeah. not download this. Do not watch this on streaming. Do not buy the DVD. Watch this in cinemas because the sound and the, the scale of the screen matters to the story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, any parting thoughts on Top Gun Maverick before we move on to oh, our number seven? Uh, yeah, I wasn't expecting once again to wax lyrical about Top Gun, but I, we just spent the last 10 minutes doing that. So, Yes, please mm. go catch this. Uh, I know it's so easy to be skeptical and cynical about it. I think it will surprise you for sure. Definitely, man. Um, next up at number seven, I'm going to talk briefly about Writing with Fire, which mm-hmm. is the feature debut documentary from directors Rintu Thomas and Sushit Ghosh. Uh, this is an inspiring journalism documentary following the brief editors and reporters of India's only women-run newspaper, the Kabbalah Laharia. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, the concerns of the Kabbalah Laharia are the same as any journalist you would find in anywhere in the world. They cover news and concerns of their communities. They expose corruption and injustice. They even, I mean, a big, a big plot point in the documentary is the, the reporters navigating the difficult transition from print to digital, mm-hmm. which, let me tell you, like every journalist who... I mean, <laughs> Maybe not, maybe not new journalists, but any journalist who's been doing this since the print era can understand the frustration of that transition. It's yeah. a difficult one. Uh, whether you live in India, in a rural community, or whether you live in New York, it's, it's tough, man. It's, it's a tricky transition. But in many other ways, these particular journalists are quite extraordinary. What makes them unusual is that they're all Dalit women operating in Uttar Pradesh, which is one of the most patriarchal regions in India. And the Dalits are among the lowest in India's caste system. And Dalit women are frequently targets of sexual assault or violence. Um, We, the viewers, sit in on editorial meetings. We sit in on training sessions and go out in the field with these women. Writing with Fire becomes a compelling documentary look at the personal and professional sides of their work, Mm -hmm. offering up a wide-ranging survey of a vital outlet with many urgent stories to tell. Um, there is the veteran editor-in-chief Mira who is investigating the disturbing story of a repeated rape victim who has been ignored by the police uh, who, I'm not kidding, uh, who is really in real life, you know, this is a thing. Like, she's been raped over 50 times in a two-month span and nobody has done a thing. You're following a a younger reporter, a 20-year-old by the name of Sunita who is a former child laborer who is now crusading against the illegal mining industry. So we are thrown into the thick of the process with these scrappy reporters who are trying to fight for change uh, and justice amidst you know, an unjust world. Mm-hmm. They face caste discrimination. They face, obviously, resistance from men. They become the targets of powerful officials. And those are just the everyday dangers for these women, yet they are courageously continuing to strive for their ideals of truth and justice. Uh, Writing with Fire chronicles the struggles and triumphs of um, and it is an illuminating look at what can happen when even the most marginalized members of a society decide to empower themselves. Um, Writing the Fire was shown in Singapore at The Projector, and now it's available on streaming at The Projector Plus, which is The Projector's streaming service. Mm-hmm. So highly encourage you to check this documentary out. It's only 80 minutes. It's a very quick watch, uh, but you should catch this. It's perhaps other than... Um, Man, what was that Romanian documentary we covered last year? Um, oh, no. Uh, um, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, yeah. Can... You, you, know what I'm, yes. you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, the Romanian documentary about the, the health crisis in, in Romania that was kick-started by 
um, the nightclub fire, um, and then it spiraled into a, a conspiracy involving yeah. involving a sports CEO. newspaper. Yeah, yeah, the sports newspaper is the one that I uncovered. But yeah, I mean, besides movies like that and and other movies um, of similar ilk, like writing fire is right up there. Like, yeah, with the top of them, um, it's of it's of that level. Um, so I would highly encourage you. Uh, check that out as well. Uh, now we've come to the final entry in mm-hmm. the first five of these films. Number six is a very low-key indie movie called Come On, Come On. Uh, what is Come On, Come On about? Um, well, it's simple, but doesn't make it any less deep. It stars yeah. uh, Joaquin Phoenix as Johnny, who is a kind-hearted radio journalist deep in a project in which he interviews children all across the United States about our world's uncertain future. Uh, his sister, Viv, asks him to watch over her eight-year-old son, Jesse, uh, while she tends to the child's father, who's suffering from a mental health breakdown. Yep. Um, after agreeing, Johnny finds himself connecting with his nephew in ways that he hadn't expected, ultimately taking Jesse with him on a journey from Los Angeles to New York to New Orleans on a cross-country road trip that is partly for his work and partly a bonding session uh, with his uh, nephew. Um, what do you think about Come On, Come On? Oh man, uh, I I really love this film. It resonated with me like personally on kind of like many levels, right? Mm. Um, having nephews of about the similar age to to Jesse, um, yeah. and and just kind of like my role as an uncle in kind of interacting with them and watching them kind of grow. Uh, mm. The fact that you know a lot of it has to do with like capturing audio and and just like the uh, the medium of audio as a form of storytelling. You know, which is yeah. something very close to my heart as well. Uh, this was a, a fantastic and nuanced and amazing, uh, sim- simple in its presentation, but so deep in its exploration uh, that I was really, really taken by. Right? It's not very long. I think it's like a hun- just over a hundred minutes worth of runtime, uh, and it's such a uh, small glimpse into the relationships between. Well, la- largely Bohin Phoenix's character, uh, Johnny, his sister, and his nephew, um, that was incredibly moving in the smallest of ways. Uh, there's just so many things that I think uh, we forget as adults, uh, and mm. both the overall kind of like uh, overall kind of like premise of the story. Um, with with his work in going to interview children and asking what they feel about our future, um, mm. and this story with his nephew that that unfolds, um, it was incredibly compelling. I was kind of like rooted in my seat for all of that, despite the fact that there's nothing grand in terms of like its conflict or its climax or anything of the sort. Uh, but such a well told story, such amazing performances, particularly from uh, Wahin Phoenix and. Oh no, I forgot the boy's name. Um, uh, Jesse, played by uh, uh, Woody, Woody Nor- yeah. Norman. Woody Norman, yeah. Such such an amazing, so many great scenes, so many amazing kind of like questions that reminded me of a lot of conversations I've had with my nephew. Um, mm. You know, and uh, like it's the 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 cleanness and simplicity of the black and white um, mm. that that uh, Mike Mills has chosen to use, especially with the way that he frames, like it it feels clean, it feels simple, allows you to focus on every little bit of the facial expression, every little mm. bit of like what's recorded, um, you know, in 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 the audio recordings or like the gestures and like the intonations of their voice as they're conversing or joking around or wrestling, like it feels, um. Uh, 
so clinical in terms of like trying to shift your focus in that direction. So you get yep. the fullness of that, right? Without all the pizzazz that, you know, so many movies today try and like enthrall you with, you know? Mm. Uh, and that to me felt fresh. That to me felt different. That to me felt like an important distinction in, in, in its aesthetic choice for that reason. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah, you know, uh, this thread of real kids um, opining about the nature of things, it's, it's threaded throughout this amazing film by Mike Mills. It mm -hmm. kind of reminds us of the insight or the variance of the universal similarities that these little ones across America and beyond feel about our changing world, um, the issues in our world today. Yeah. Um, but at the center of it is, you know, this one mean kid, Jesse, this a uh, little boy with a big mind who is poised but not precocious, you know, not overwhelmingly <laughs> precocious in the way that, that Hollywood kids tend to be written. Yeah. Um, Woody Norman is, you know, um, very fluid and very um, naturally reacts to Mike Mills' scenarios and suggestions and those of the adult actors in his company. Um, Jesse seems like a scamp and a annoying and endearing at the same time. <laughs> He's uh, content to cuddle back in the comforting folds of pampered kiddie life while also yearning to stretch beyond that and understand the larger world rushing at him. So he is in most ways just a typical kid, like a jumble of questions and energy whom the childless Johnny must learn to manage and understand during their time together across America. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, we've seen plenty of films like this in which an independent person is suddenly saddled with a child. It's kind of become a hoary film trope, sometimes used effectively, yeah. sometimes not, but very often in the service of basic themes. Um, raising kids is difficult, grown-up sacrifices must be made, valuable lessons must be learned. But what Mills does so ingeniously in Come On, Come On is approach that triteness head-on. This is exactly that kind of movie, and it knows yeah. it, and it's unabashed about it. Mm -hmm. Johnny, like, this some basic shit that you've seen in almost every movie, but it feels different in Come On, Come On. Johnny loses Jesse in a store. How many times <laughs> have you seen that? Um, Jesse asks questions about Johnny's personal life, and Jesse, at times, wouldn't you know it, seems to be the one raising Johnny. And aware of all that and the formula, Mick Mills takes the time to specify what it might mean for these particular people. He peppers his complicated, credible conversations with idiosyncratic detail. Characters react in a way that real humans might when faced with the wary difficulties of being alive, the yeah. struggles of tending to yourself, not just tending to yourself, but tending to others. And Mills makes this genre feels new and insightful, as if he's one of the only few filmmakers who's ever done this type of thing before. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's I, I think it was said that Mike Mills said um, that Kamakama was inspired by his relationship with his own kid. Mm -hmm. uh, and it really seems like the sensitivity of the moving visuals and oral collage, uh, collages and the dialogue and the relationship between Johnny and Jesse feels like it's drawn from a very real place. Yeah. Um, it, it feels like you know something that you would see in Better Things, something that is the naturalness of it. You mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. um, it's very gentle and organic and soft and uh, it has a lot of big ideas on its mind, but it's not yeah. didactic about them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, about the topic of child rearing or about the politics of today and where kids see themselves yeah. in a in a increasingly dystopian world. Um, the lush black and white, like you said, brings the quotidian beauty and and mm. it places the visits and the places into sharper contrast. Um, everything from LA to New York to even New Orleans. Um. And I think the film opens in Detroit as well, so those are the locations. Yeah. Uh, they all they each get a very lovely, honest assessment. It's not a, 
uh, a romanticization of of uh, each place. Uh, I love the score as well, oh, the yeah. pianos and the and the plaintive music by, I think it was the National that did it. Um, yeah, uh, this is a very winsome film. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps very a, a bit too low key to get too much attention either from the mainstream audience or from awards. Uh, but I don't know. I like I I just found this very low key film to be very beautiful, and that's why it ranks so highly in in my list here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, any parting thoughts before we uh we cap off this episode of Behold? Oh man. Um, yeah, it feels like a simple film, but there mm. there's just so much that's kind of there to kind of chew your way through. You yep. know, um, so many uh conversations. There are things that resonate because they feel similar to conversations I've had with my brother or or with like other friends who are parents. Uh, the conversations mm. with my nephew or other, you know, kids of similar age, like that, all of that, you know, um, just adds to the fullness of this film. Uh, yeah. And I, I think, like, watching this made me feel, it made me feel uh, more more whole, uh, I think, after watching it. Like, it, it felt like a great deal had been accomplished despite its, mm. its simple story and its very short runtime. Yeah, you know, it, it, it kind of fills me in that, you know, um, we, I like, you know, a lot of people around our age kind of forget that we are not the new generation anymore. Yeah. And there are a lot of young people now today in the world discovering and processing everything anew. And that there will be even more young people doing that after them. Um, it offers both terrible and comforting context for our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Johnny and Jesse arrive in at Come On, Come On in particular um, and Mills ends his film, you know, with this discreet promise made with very quiet power just between them. Yeah. There is so much to be drawn from the film for anyone who may themselves be reeling in the, confu- in the confusion of our condition today, uh, yeah. our common condition. Mm-hmm. We have, as it turns out, learned things and we have wisened, matured. Um, we have taken some hold of the chaos and uh, acknowledged it or experienced it or grappled with it. And mm-hmm. to talk to a child, innocent and curious and still forming maybe a quick reminder of what we've gained, but there's also our own assessment to be done too, you know, this kind yep. of hard-won appreciation of all the questions that we've asked of the world and bit by bit had answered, whether rightly or wrongly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a, a nice little beautiful film, come on, come on, available on VOD and digital right now, also available on the Projector Plus. Yeah. Uh, so check this out. Um, Top Gun has to be seen in the cinema, but everything else can be streamed. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I, I want Top Gun to be like running in cinemas like forever. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because, like, I, just, I just feel like it's wrong to to ask someone to stream Top Gun Maverick. It's just not that kind of film. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's uh, it, we all know that it would be kind of a eventuality that that will happen. So like take advantage, yeah. you know, of that fact because yeah. not everybody's going to have like an amazing cinema setup at home. Like we're going to be watching off our phones. We're going to be watching off of like screens. Uh, mm-hmm. way, way smaller than it need to be. You know, it's just one of those things and it's so strange to say this, that Top Gun needs to be watched in the cinema much like you would watch anything from Nolan, mm. right? Uh, but you do. You do. So please do uh, as best as you can. Yeah, I mean, Top Gun is, Top Gun Maverick, honestly, like it's worth your 13 to $16, uh, mm. much more than Tenet ever was. <laughs> oh, yes, certainly, yeah. certainly true. Yeah, yeah. Um, that wraps it up for this episode of Behold. That was our number, our number 10 to number 6. Number 5 to number 1 is coming to you in just a short couple of weeks. Um, I've had number, my number 1 settled for a long time, ever since I saw it in March. Mm-hmm. I already, I, I've known what my number 1 is going to be for a long time. But 
the rest will be a surprise to you guys. Um, Isa is going to watch four of them. I think yes. uh, one of them I was unable to get a copy for him, so I'll handle that one by myself. But mm-hmm. in any case, um, yeah, um, any parting thoughts about any of these five films before we cap off our episode here? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, like, I think all of these are, are stuff that like is recent enough for you to get your kind of get your hands on. Right. Mm. Uh, and uh, please feel free to go and kind of check out that. Like, I think with um everything kind of opening up in the midst of this pandemic, uh, yep. and like all the films finally getting back on schedule, we've had more films this year to kind of review mm. and talk about and 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 just kind of like rave about than we've ever had mm. before. So I'm expecting a lot more to come in the second half of the year. Um, mm. so yeah, if you've uh, you've got time, you know, uh, and you know you've got a bit of change to go and watch in the cinema if you're comfortable doing so, uh, yep. definitely go and check some of these out if they're screening uh, in the cinema near you or grab them wherever they are available. Yeah, uh, well said. Uh, so that wraps it up for this episode of Behold Fifty. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Till then, this has been Hit Zero. Am I, sir? Goodbye, guys. Ciao.